0: Yes, P. The stops. This is Motley Fool Money.
1: Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that wishes you a very happy Easter. That's right, I'm Scott Easter Bunny Phillips, and with me is...
2: What can I call you? Maybe... You can just call me Easter Easter Bunny Bunny something.
1: That'll do. Easter Easter Bunny <laughs> bunny, bunny, Doc. And you're buying my heart. Doc. How are you? I'm very good. Mate, happy Easter. We, we are recording this, as I mentioned, last week. We recorded this last week, so that's kind of weird, but... Happy Easter, mate.
2: Happy Easter to all our listeners.
1: Exactly. We hope you have a great... Break for those of you who are religiously minor, We hope Easter is a enjoyable and fulfilling time for you. And for those who aren't, we hope you're having a good break, getting a chance to kick back a little bit, spend some time with family and friends, or just simply eating chocolate. Eating chocolate, That's exactly. <laughs> what are you? A, are you a chocolateer?
2: <laughs> no, I mean there's, the fridge gets filled with Easter chocolates. And my, you know, my daughter this morning actually took a bag and she said that bag is too small. So I said, look at your your stuff. you you know, Easter eggs this this much. So I'm going to get a lot more. So well, okay, well, <laughs> good luck, mate. <laughs> very
1: nice. Very very nice. It's uh, it's a good time of year, mate. I uh, I'm actually off chocolate. I've been off chocolate since last June, so it's going to kill me to go through Easter without having any chocolate. But uh, I'm a Cadbury chocolate fan, generally speaking.
2: Okay, well, I can still I can still taste it. Well, well, the, you you know, you just have to avoid the craving. <laughs> well, uh, and I, I, I wish you
1: luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no chocolate in the house yet, so uh, fingers crossed. I, I know my mother uh, has has a, a well worn Easter tradition, which is she buys the eggs early and eats them and then buys some more and eats those and then buys some more and then they're normally the ones we get so um, (laughs) the the grandkids will be well looked after but uh, they won't be the third or fourth generation of eggs that enter her house that (laughs) end up being given to the kids Mate, we have a chock full, full mailbag this week. We have, we are recording this a week earlier, as I mentioned. So uh, we recorded this a week ago. And so we don't have anything particularly time. If any great news broke this week, then we know about it. We just can't tell you about it because we've already recorded the podcast. We will instead uh, concentrate on the mailbag. I think, look, we, we think based on the feedback that we get from you, this is an enjoyable part of what we do. We also hope that we can cover some important investing concepts in answering your questions. And as always, as we say, if you do want to get in contact with us, please hit us up on email on Facebook. Facebook, or on Twitter, and I'll give those handles a little bit later. Um, but we do love hearing from you, as I mentioned, most weeks. Uh, it's great to, to know what's on your mind, to understand the questions that you have to ask, and the, you know, give us a chance to, to answer things that we think are important to you, or at least you're telling us are important to you. Mate, that's about enough of an Shall I get on with it?
0: Yes, let's do it. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Now I've set a horrible task for myself because, Doc. Last week I almost certainly mispronounced Valhav's name. Let me do, Can do it. it. Can you do it? Can you do it? So it's Vaibhav. Oh, jeez! I'm glad you
2: Mehrotra.
1: Not from... Oh man, is no, it an Indian name? Do I? It do I I, uh, looks like accent? an
2: Indian name, and uh, All right. so you know. Can she you sh- go again for me? Vaibhav Mehrotra. Oh
1: God! I'm glad I didn't have to do that. Thank you, mate. I, no, I, you should I, try.
2: Don't... <laughs> No. <laughs> I love putting in a spot. You had a
1: great I was watching you pronounce it thinking, I'm glad I don't have to do that. I can't you can y- You know,
2: you, you had a great segue with the chalk and the chocolate, you know. I thought you can do Vambo well as well.
1: I would love to. I uh I look I know I don't say with any fun, I, I don't it's not something I do to try to make fun of people's names and I, I have absolutely no intention of doing so. Um She's so, just my, gonna give
2: me a like on uh Twitter. That's gotta be
1: worth something, right? Yeah, exactly. A At- Mahanti is, is Doc's uh, Twitter account. Do that do that for me, please. Uh I do apologise for horribly mispronouncing it, mate. Thank you for not correcting me until this week. It makes me a little bit less bad, but uh, my, my apologies. It's, um, it's not something I like doing. I try and get it right where I can. All right. So, the, the second half of the question from last week from... web well. Thank you. Is, uh, I'm new to Superstar. Sorry, uh, any drawbacks on switching super funds? question mark. I'm new to Superstaff and with rest at the moment. Not sure I should be happy with the performance since 2015. Now, that's a really, really good question. I'm going to give a general thought, but before I do, Doc, your thoughts on whether... It's more advisable, or are there any drawbacks in switching super funds?
2: Okay, this is a very complex question, isn't it? <laughs> it's a complex question. <laughs> well, I asked you, it's mate. A, it's a great I did the, question. I do the simple ones. Like, I ask you the hard ones. This is, this is a complex question. So, I mean. <laughs> Look, I mean, there's no drawback as such to switch your super fund in the sense that, well, if you can find a better performing super fund, then why not, right? Yeah. The government uh, regulations make it easy to actually switch the funds. The 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 I mean, there are many considerations here. You have to see what the performance of the um, the rest fund is. You have to see, um, you know, how the allocations. A lot of the performance also depends on how you have asked your fund to allocate Mm -hmm. your money, right? So that that's you know. So if you
1: haven't asked them. You're normally in what's called a my super product where they give you a sort of a balanced
2: portfolio investment yeah. strategy yeah
1: which is probably got some cash some property some overseas shares some local shares exactly or you can say hey i'm a super conservative investor i just want to be in cash or mm. i'm a super aggressive investor i want to be in high growth yeah and so they're going to kind of it's hard to blame the fund if you haven't chosen how You exactly, want to the exactly right? and,
2: and there are other things like, you know super funds would also have life insurance products in built yeah, into them point. so you have to look into that yep. it, super is is a, it's a complex it's really really complex and sounds like something invented by a government mate well, it's a great, it's a good product it actually. If you, if it's, if it's, a, it's a wonderful thing in the long run, but that it is a complex product. I agree. So, I mean, I you know, I leave it to you to come <laughs> up with like handball. Yeah, hand the ball, hand the ball back to you. In the sense right. of it, there is no, I mean, there are lots of things you can look at. A lot of variables here to look at, yep. um, but you know. It's 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 just a hard one.
1: Mate, I'm glad you talked about the investment strategies because it wasn't something I was going to talk about. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Otherwise, it would have gone un, untouched. And that's why I have you here because you're the guru, and I just uh, I just talk about stuff. Um, I, look, I th- my my view generally is a couple things. So, firstly, I think the strategy thing is super super important. And while we won't give specific advice because we can't at all in this podcast ever, but in general in this co- circumstance. As a matter of course, the first thing is shares are volatile, right? Investing is volatile. Property is volatile. We know it wasn't supposed to be, and all of a sudden now it is. Um, At least we always knew it was, but some people didn't know it was. Um, And when you're investing, you want to know that volatility is going to happen. Now, if you're the sort of investor who can – and and as a super fund member, you are an investor. So when I say investor, I don't necessarily mean personal investing. I mean if you're, you're super balanced, if you're invested only in shares, it will fluctuate more than if you're invested in property or cash, right? That's just the reality of these things. Now, we would say that history suggests that the fluctuation, the volatility is worth enduring because the returns that come from it are, generally speaking, better than almost any asset class over almost any time frame, any long time frame anyway. So generally speaking, if you were and you've only just started contributing to rest, so I'm gonna I'm gonna assume you're a young person. That may be a horrible assumption, but let's assume that's true because you've only had it since September 2015. Um, to the extent that's true, the 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 longer you have left in your investment life, if you can if you can stomach the volatility, and you need to know this right, don't pretend you can and then freak out when it happens. So really know yourself and and think to yourself, okay, is this for real? Can I really really endure that volatility? If you can, I think most people who are younger should be in higher growth investment options, right? Because there's no point being in cash earning two percent when you can invest in over many, many decades the historical return from shares has been 10%. That's a lot to give up. And compounding, it's hugely different, right? If you earn 2%, you'll double your money every 30 or so years. If you get 10%, you'll double your money every seven years. So it's not just an 8 percentage point difference. It seems, you know, $110, $108, $102, sorry, after a year, it doesn't feel like a big difference. But if you compound that for any length of time, huge, huge difference. So firstly, take as much volatility as you're comfortable with. The more, the better, because it gets you out of the lower returning assets, Secondly, I would say I have no view on REST Super specifically. Um, I am happy that it's an industry fund rather than a retail fund. As I said last week, we don't have any problem with profits, but I don't like paying other people their profits. So (laughs) we like our companies to make money, but uh, not the things we actually buy off the shelf. And this is Super is one of those things. Generally speaking, retail funds as a group, horribly, horribly lag against industry funds. And just to define my terms here, a retail fund is a for-profit one offered normally by a bank or a financial institution. So if you think about a colonial first state or a CBA or a... Uh, what else is out there, mate? Um, plenty of others anyway. If, it, if, it's, if it's run by a BT, bank or a... BT. BT if it's run BT's by a bank the, or a financial service yeah. company. They're making profit off that. and that's, They're entitled to That's completely fine. The problem is if they do that, the money's coming out of your pocket, not theirs, right? So they have, <laughs> you're the only one who's paying the fees. So if they're making money, you're not. An industry fund is a not-for-profit fund normally set up between unions and employers generally speaking or industry bodies of some description or other. Some people have a political view about the union involvement. I, I don't really care. I, I just, I'm going to stay at it altogether. The reality is they are lower fee and over time industry funds, the not-for-profit funds massively, massively outperform retail funds. right? And again, talk about the compounding. I saw some numbers that can have an up to 45% difference on your super value by the time you retire. Right? That's a large so, number. Well, it's kind of half, right? Mm. So, And just because the compound value of fees. So you know, those AGC where the kind of the cupped hands above and below you know i'm in industry super those mobs generally are better than the others really with super you just want to put your money in get the best return you can and leave it for as long as you possibly can so i uh, you know I, I wouldn't i wouldn't worry about the performance of rest in september 2015 if you're in the right strategy um i would personally be going for as higher growth strategy as you can comfortably cope with volatility wise in an industry fund and let them do their thing
0: Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Full Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Now, Doc, here's one I can pronounce. It's from <laughs> Baboon the Investor on Twitter. <laughs> I love the name. <laughs> Me too. Um, so I, I, I'm happy to say this one. Um, baboon the Investor says, uh, Greetings, Scott and Dr. Mahanti. That's very formal. Very awesome. Mm. Nice Why didn't I get Mr. Phillips?
2: I don't know. I like Baboon. <laughs> correct. I do too. So, you yeah. know.
1: I a question from a new investor that's trying not to get lost with all the quantitative indices, man, we'll go through it in a minute, mm. to measure the value of a company. But a specific question, what is the reason for a company to be valued at less than NTAP? For instance, a VAO group or MaxiTrans? Now, I don't follow Aveo closely. I don't think you do either, mate, or MaxiTrans. But if you do, feel free to comment. Generally speaking, though, so firstly, from a new investor, getting into all the quant stuff, you're not a big quant guy, I'm guessing, mate. You're not really a valuation kind of guy, are you? Not really. What reasons would a company trade for less than its net tangible asset? I think that's what NTA... We normally say NTA. Um, the P must be per... Be per share. Per share I or something so. like that. I think yeah. so. So let's assume it's NTA, net tangible assets. Now, let's again define our terms. I like that phrase. I've got it from mm-hmm. David Gunn. I'm a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. Let's define our terms. What is net tangible assets?
2: Okay. So... Tangible assets are assets that you can touch and feel, and okay, cash see. in the
1: bank, cash a, in a, a bank, truck down the car park, yeah, a factory
2: assembly a okay. plant,
1: chairs and desks,
2: chairs and desks, computers, but not
1: brand names or licenses or
2: yeah, brand names, you know, intangibles, right? right? So brand names, um, even, I mean, yeah.
1: So I know you're not this sort of investor, but why would I care about tangible assets rather than intangible
2: assets? Well, okay, so if. Your company is being liquidated.
1: Yes. Why would it be liquidated? <laughs> if
2: your company is going bankrupt.
1: <laughs> okay. So the business doesn't make any money. The creditors yeah. say, dude, that's it, you're done. Yeah.
2: So so the, the, the tangible assets are easier to sell. Like if there's a piece of land, or in theory, yep. at least, a piece of land, then, uh, and the company owns that piece of land, then you can sell it.
1: Right. Because if you've got a brand that's worth a million dollars on the books, yeah. if you go broke, there's a fair chance that not the worth a million dollars The brand is anymore, damaged. Right? So, yeah, the brand is damaged. So getting, you might get a couple, of box, a couple of bucks from the brand. I'm thinking, I say Dick Smith, for example, right? Yeah. When it went broke, Kogan bought Dick Smith.com. Com because they wanted the domain to sell Kogan products on. Yeah, um, so that you know, it had a little bit of value, mm-hmm. but not a whole heap compared to the fact they had some inventory in the warehouse and other things they could actually sell.
2: Exactly. So you. So, so yeah. So a lot. In, in the industrial, so the, the way to think about it, in the industrial age, when mm-hmm. a lot of companies basically had a lot of plants, machineries, and, you know, warehouses, go-downs, and physical assets, then you could look at the intangible mm-hmm. asset mm-hmm. at, at that time. Now, in this day and age, a lot of companies are IP companies, they're intellectual property companies, right? So they are asset light right, in that sense. Right. So if you're, if you're looking at a, I don't know, um, any software company on the ASX? Say Apple, go on. Oh, well, you know, let's I, I so it's a software company, any software company, right. let's, let's, let's say you're looking at Appen, right? Appen, okay. Okay. You know, Appen does, um, you know, um, voice transcriptions and things like that. It's an, you know, artificial. it uses artificial intelligence to help other companies mm-hmm. in the... Um, In contextualization of information that people are, for example, searching.
1: Possibly hire some staff, but they're not on the books, so there's no assets there.
2: Exactly. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that they do is Mm -hmm. basically related to intellectual property and IP and processes and so on. But it's good, you know, they probably only lease offices, right? They don't actually even own plants, machineries. They may have some chairs and tables, but it's not the same thing as having, you know, large factories spinning out
1: Cars. So for the investor, the benefit of Appen is it doesn't cost much money to run. Yeah. And if you believe it's going to win a lot of profits in the future, you don't really care about whether there's desks and chairs and factories and, and widgets. You just care about how well they can sell their service to somebody else.
2: Exactly. And and being asset light is great in the sense that you know it requires less capital to grow and right. therefore it right. can actually potentially grow faster. Right. So that's the trade-off. But it's there. riskier
1: because if it does go broke or gets into trouble, it hasn't got much to sell. So there's kind of a decent downside risk if, if something if, – and not about happen necessarily because we have yeah. reviews on the company. But if the if the business got tough all of a sudden and it went broke or simply tried to raise cash, it couldn't do that easily, right? That's right. On the flip side, you've got, say, a – let's say, center group who yeah. own, own and operate the Westfield centers in Australia and New Zealand. Yep they're pretty much all hard assets right
2: exactly yeah so the hard asset prices could fall but there are some hard assets that you know you could you could liquidate right i mean the the uh, the flip side here though is um, most of the time uh, you know people shareholders try to think about ntas or yep. net tangible assets but it we need to realize that companies that typically have a lot of hard assets also have a lot of debt mm-hmm. and the debt typically is he- held by debt holders and and then the in the hierarchy of people being paid in the event of bad things happening, yes. shareholders are way below. Right. So right.
1: The, de- the, the debt holders get paid back first, Yeah. secure debt holders. Now, here's the thing. This is this is why the word net is important, because net tangible assets yeah. takes all of those assets and says, let's take off the debt first yeah, that's right. That's right. and yeah. find out what's left. You got yeah. you've got two bucks of assets per share, a dollar of debt per share. Yeah. So your net tangible assets, tangible again, are $1 per share. Right. And what Baboon's asking is, well, if you get a buck in, in the bank- Yeah. Why would the shares be trading for ninety cents?
2: Um. Yeah. So sometimes you know, if it's trading at ninety cents, you know, maybe sometimes it could be an indication of um, mispricing on the market spot, yes. right? On the so other it could time- be cheap. It could be cheap, so that's that's you know, like it's like typically how people might buy banks on a on a book value basis, for example, right below book value might look cheap. But the other thing could be that the market is actually pricing in the fact that a tangible assets are actually going to be worth less in in the future, right?
1: And why would that happen, Mike?
2: Well, property prices do fall. you mentioned that before. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, things, property values uh, fall, uh, plants and, and machineries and assembly plants yep. and things like that might become useless. Yep. All sorts of things, right?
1: It's, I'll, add a, I'll add a couple here. The, th- the another thing with those assets is that uh, uh, the book value or the, the recorded value in the accounts, which part, makes up part of the net tangible assets, are uh, based on what they are paid for. It, or what the depreciated value is. So you bought a desk for 100 bucks, you've used it for a year, you could probably sell it for 90 bucks now, so it's worth a theory. In theory, 90 bucks on the books, right? And that would be part of the NTA calculation. The problem is that if you had a business go out of business, well, say Dick Smith, for example, went out of business, and my local Dick Smith, you could walk in there and buy shelving, and you could buy a cash register, and you could buy their you know, lighting, and they were, they were literally selling everything. I guarantee they weren't being sold for the same price they are on the books for. So the so-called fire sale value, in other words, if you sold everything because the liquidator says it's all got to go – you're not going to recover your net tangible asset value because you're recording it at a business as usual value, mm. and it's simply not worth that much if you've got to sell it in a hurry or there's an oversupply of whatever it is. The inventory they had, for example, they had a truckload of TVs. They went out of business because they couldn't sell the TVs. Mm. Now they're trying to sell them cheaply. It's going to be sold at half the price or three quarters of the or a quarter of the price they were previously. Right. So they're on the books at 100 bucks for TV or a thousand bucks. They're now selling them for 500 bucks or 400 bucks. So you're not going to recover that NTA. The other reason I'll say is that often businesses that are likely to lose money over time. While losing money over the time, are also valued less because if you've got 100 bucks cash in the bank, but you're going to lose 50 bucks this year, you're going to finish the year with less cash than you started with. And so, the NTA being backward-looking doesn't always take into account the fact that well, things kind of can get worse, mm. right? And so, you end up with less assets because you're simply you're spending money mm. and you're making a loss. And so, that NTA is going to fall over time.
2: That's very complicated.
1: It is generally speaking. I don't think you're an NTA kind of guy. I you?
2: don't like NTA. <laughs> <laughs> Any kind co- investing based on NTA is not my thing. I would I would steer clear of it.
1: I would too. The only thing I would say about NTA actually, and it's part of the steer clear question, is just be careful with things like property trusts. Um at the end of the day, if you're a property investor, you want to buy or sell a property for what it's worth. I mean, ideally less than it's worth. If you've got a if you've got a property company, say a, again a center group selling on one point two times its value, book value, it's like if you went to the set, oh yeah, you know, that structure is worth a million dollars, I'll pay you one point two million dollars for it. If the, if the value on the books is being recorded correctly, and it should be for property companies, paying above book value is generally a really 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 bad way to make money. Unless they have some sort of profit generating machine that doesn't that doesn't account for that property, right? So because the other day that the property value is a function of its rent. If you're collecting the rent as a landlord, then you're getting that rent anyway. The property's worth what it's worth. Paying more than book value, as I said, like like going to an auction and saying, "Well, I know that I know the house is worth a million, but I'll pay one point two for it." Hmm. Um, you would never do that. So just, just be a little bit careful with NTA. It's usually not very useful for most companies these days, but for companies have a lot of hard assets for financial companies and for property companies, it's a really, really important metric. For
2: property companies, uh, aren't those um, revised every couple of years, a few years, the The, the book value?
1: So it's every year part of the portfolio is revalued. Revalued, So I think it's every four or five years on a rotating basis. So effectively, 25 or 20% of that per year is revalued. Again, now that's based on the current valuation. So as yep. you said, with property prices falling, yep. if you were buying into a home builder that had a lot of inventory on the books, you can assume that possibly the inventory they're trying to sell is actually worth less than what they've got on mm, the book.
2: Because only 25% would have been revalued this year and the rest 75% would be revalued next year. Is that the sort yeah, of logic?
1: Or over, over three or four years. Directors are supposed to take them into account. So if you knew that the prices were moving meaningfully, the director's obligations should be, the auditor should make them revalue the whole lot. So if I, if I was an auditor of a of a company that held a lot of residential property, for example, mm-hmm. I'd be saying, I'm not going to sign off your books if you're going to really revalue a quarter of it because we both know that if a quarter of it's fallen in value, the other three quarters has as exactly. well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they should, uh, directors are responsible for representing the accounts in a true and fair manner. They should revalue the lot. They possibly don't, so just be a little bit careful.
0: Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Mate, on to another question. We've got a question from Simon. Uh, Simon lives in Tokyo. Hey, Which I think nice. so far is our furthest away listener, am I right in, or at least correspondent? probably if you're further away from from sydney than tokyo please get in touch with us hit us up on the socials or via email i'll give you those details in a minute um jump online and let us know where you're listening from that'll be just kind of fun we'll we'll put up a virtual pinboard and we'll try and work out who's furthest away uh, just just for the fun of it um so simon says hi guys love the podcast hey hey. hey hey he knows what to do he's been listening i listen every friday from tokyo japan my question is for doc mm. no this questions should, for me should we move on
2: go to the question. All right, all right. I already already like Simon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like Simon a little bit less. I used to like Simon Uh, more.
2: I think Simon is a great guy.
1: Uh, (laughs) We love you, Simon. Can you please explain to me how you make money from growth stocks that don't pay a dividend? It's nice to see when share prices go up, but unless you actually sell some of your shares, isn't that profit just a number on a computer screen? Do you sell some shares while retaining some in case the price goes up further? If so, when and how do you approach this? So uh, they've gone into it, some other, some other, uh, another company, but let's just let's just stop there for a second. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm an investor in Telstra, which I happen to be, mm. leader, I own the shares. I'm going to get paid. In fact, the Telstra dividend arrived the other day, which is kind of nice. Got my Coke dividend too the other day. Oh. That was good. Um, I'm unfortunately both losing money on both shares, so that's probably part of your answer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, if I'm a Telstra shareholder, I've got the shares. I can hold them mm. effectively, indefinitely. The company's going to throw me some money every six months, assuming it still mm. remains profitable, which I'm going to assume it will. So I get some. Um, that's how I make my money from Telstra shares, right? If I hold them, I don't sell them. I'm richer because I, I've, I've sold them. I can spend that money. I can reinvest that money. I can do whatever I want. That sounds like fun. I also own Berkshire Hathaway shares, and so far I'm no richer, at least in any physical way, for owning Berkshire Hathaway because I've never paid me a dividend. Am I a mug for holding Berkshire Hathaway or am I a mug for holding Telstra and why?
2: You know the answer to that one.
1: <laughs> I'm so, you on, mate. So, I'm a nice bloke. So I'm just so, so so
2: right here. So I'm not gonna embarrass you further. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna go and answer. So I, I think the, the, here's a here's a common fallacy. The common fallacy is that there's something people think about house money. So I'll explain that. Yes. So let's say you invest a thousand dollars in a company. Yes. People think of that that's house money, right? Mm-hmm. In in the gambling term. Yep. And now that company has say become worth two thousand. Right. Then they think that okay, what I can do is I can take back my house money, a thousand bucks. And then leave the other thousand. Right, right. Because I haven't lost any money then. But then you have not. Then you can never lose money. But here's the deal: the thousand bucks was your money, and the two thousand bucks too is your money. Effectively, any gains from the shares are your money. Right. right? So if you buy growth stocks and they go up, like you know, or Berkshire Hathaway is not quite the growth stock, but it does go up or has gone up in the past. So therefore, if you had invested a thousand bucks in Berkshire and today it is let's say two thousand bucks. Mm You actually have gain on that. It's just the same thing as, effectively the same thing as getting a dividend. It's just another way of getting gains in the market.
1: Okay, right? but I, but that gain is not real until I sell, right? So, and I, I going to be a bit concerned that well, if my, if my $2,000 turns into $1,000 before I have a chance to sell the shares, then I might end up making nothing at all?
2: That is true. That is correct, but at the same time, you could have bought Telstra at six dollars, oh, and today it is kind. at uh, today is at two dollars and fifty cents. Hey, hey, so three dollars twenty at least, okay, Come on, let, come let, on. Let, let's for the sake of maths. <laughs> let's say that you bought at five bucks, and then today it is two fifty. Oh, you're you making you're making maybe eight percent on dividend, but your share price is actually halved. So right. if you put a thousand bucks, it's actually five hundred now. That's you a lot need of eight percent on it. You need a lot of eight percent to actually make up. <laughs> so it's it's just another form. You, you know, you need the the gains to be looked at are a combination of both the capital appreciation and mm-hmm. the dividends. Mm-hmm. And it's the combination of both that you should look at. If you really, if you are an investor um, that needs income, you can actually generate income out of growth stocks by just selling some uh, periodically too. You know, maybe proportionally or maybe to reweight your port- portfolio however you want to do it. But right. you can actually get an income out of it. Just it's the same thing. Uh, I think you know people should not be hell bent on thinking that you can. I want only dividend paying stocks to get income. I think that basically narrows your spectrum of opportunity and and narrowing your spectrum of opportunity basically I think is not a good idea. Um, yeah. so, so that's number one. Uh, the number two is that if you don't need that money and you think your company is going to continue compounding well you can just let it compound as long as you're happy with the allocation and you can sleep at night and you can tolerate the volatility that comes with maybe growth stocks then um you know there are stocks that i have owned since maybe 2011 2012 Mm -hmm. that i haven't sold um you know and and they have compounded over time and and that's that's fine
1: i think it's a good point so look i'll add a little bit if you don't mind doc to your wonderful answer um look uh, simon here's the thing if you need the money regularly, then as Doc said, you can sell some shares to to receive some cash, right? At the end of the day, a dividend is money the company is paying to you rather than reinvesting in its own growth. And over time, it's – I mean, so Warren Buffett's – I used to work, work out the way if, um, deliberately, not only do I own it, um, but Warren Buffett's also talked about this in the past where someone said, hey, pay us a dividend, pay a dividend. Now, he said that historically, and it's true, historically at least – Money left in the company is worth much more to current shareholders than money paid as a dividend. If he paid a dividend every year since 1965, Berkshire shareholders would be much, 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 much worse off because he's returned more by reinvesting that money into new business opportunities than if he paid it in a dividend. And so his point is if you'd have wanted dividends the whole way through, or you wanted some cash, you could have simply sold off a chunk, if you want a five percent dividend, or five percent of your shares or whatever the numbers add up to, every year, take your money out of the out of the uh, out of the company um, and let the rest ride to 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 basically compound at a fast rate. If it's a growing company, it should compound, compound at that kind of rate. You know, the likes of Amazon's an easy example. Apple, you can probably tell me about 2Doc. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. But where a, an Amazon has gone from, you know, effectively $9 to 90 to 3 to 2000 or close enough to, um, over that time, you know, they couldn't have paid a dividend, but the, the, the value created is every, every bit as real as if they'd paid money out along the way. So if you need the cash, then by all means sell a bit and take some money out. If you're on a winner with the company, you're much better doing that investing in a lower growth, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, throw myself under a bus here with Telstra, I would have been much better buying more Amazon less Telstra, even though one paid dividend and one didn't because I'd be worth much more on paper. And if I wanted the cash, I could have sold some Amazon shares and still done much, much better than if I'd bought Telstra shares and, and claimed what in theory was a higher income payment. Now, if you're not looking at for the income right now, you'd in theory be reinvesting that money anyway, right? So to some degree, a company not paying a dividend is simply reinvesting that money on your behalf. So in the context of the way that works, if you know the company's worth a hundred bucks, it's a hundred bucks a share. It pays you a ten dollar dividend. So the share price falls to ninety. You take your ten dollars. You buy more Telstra again for this example. Then you've got a hundred dollars worth of Telstra again, and it's got to keep growing on its merry way. So to some degree, it can pay you out, and you can reinvest that money, or it can simply retain that cash, reinvest it in itself, and grow accordingly. And in theory, that will give you the same or a better return than actually paying tax on the dividend and then reinvesting the money anyway. So look, I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm I'm completely agnostic. My view is, and we've always said so for our services. For example, share advisor that I run, probably more than half the companies pay a dividend, but certainly not all. And the dividend just changed very dramatically from less than one percent to eight or so. I think it, was, it probably is Telstra doc. Um, the The reality is, I don't really care how the return comes. Right, all I care about is maximising the total return, whether it's half dividend, half capital growth, all capital growth, all dividends, anywhere in between, doesn't matter. Our job is to beat the market because you can always sell those shares at some future time. And as long as the company is generating real value, now, if, if it's just – if the share price going up because it's momentum and people are getting carried away, that's a whole different question, right, about valuation. But as a shareholder, I don't care whether they pay me a dividend or don't. What I care about is um, am I beating the market in a total return sense, which adds together capital growth and that dividend to try and maximize my total return.
0: Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Doc, we have a question from Ashish about a company that's a recommendation of ours at ShareAdvisor, full disclosure. He says, Hey guys, love the podcast. Hey, hey. It, oh, see. Will I rant about this or not? Do you think?
2: I love the podcast. No, the next bit. Um What
1: do you think I'm gonna rant about? You can about rant people using tickers rather than company names. Oh. Yeah, it drives me mad.
2: I, Ashish, I, I, I give it a pass
1: this time. Do you think? Can I a little bit of a rant? Can I at least talk about it? He says, okay, sure. Yeah. But he, we're, loves, we're he loves that off, stuff. We'll have producer off, off, off mic because, yes, I can talk about it. So I'm going to. <laughs> uh, oh, here's the thing, Fools. I, like, this is not a bad issue at all. This is completely usual, regular. People talk about stocks by using the tickers. I don't even like calling call them stocks, frankly. I'd rather call them companies. Anything that separates us from the business of business is a problem in my mind. People talk about stocks by using three-letter tickers. Um, CGF, in this case, which is Challenger Financial an annuities and fund management company. Uh, When you talk about TGF or TLS or WOW for Woolies or BHP for BHP, okay, bad example. Uh, When you use the the tickers only, I think it starts to mentally divorce us from the reality of investing. Now, some people will say, yeah, yeah, we know that, Scott. We're clever enough, we're big enough, we're adult enough to know that a a ticker is a company, a company is a ticker, so just back off. Um, I get that, but if you know anything about behavioral finance, you will know that our brains take shortcuts wherever they can. And as soon as you start doing that, your brain will start to think less about the company and more about the ticker, even subconsciously, right? So if you know anything about behavioral finance, you know you can't change that, you can't get around it, it is what it is, no matter how smart or capable or thoughtful you think you are. So as a matter of course, those pre-commitment devices that we like to call them, if we always talk about companies rather than tickers, we are much, much, much more likely to stop falling into the traps of thinking about them as tickers on a screen and charts and movements and all that kind of stuff and think about real businesses. That wasn't too bad, was it, Doc?
2: No, you got to rant
1: wasn't I wasn't a major rant like I didn't really get really worked up that's true ashish uh, so you ask about challenger financial I, i'll i'll edit it for you that way we'll um we'll both be happy i uh, love the podcast is challenger financial still a good buy your recommendation, December eighteen, around nine dollars. Now trading around seven dollars.
2: Now I know why you were ranting. Eh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, just just trying to cover up. Just trying to cover up.
2: Your recommendation hasn't gone up. <laughs> it's all your fault.
1: <laughs> it is my fault. Sorry, <laughs> Shish. Um, look. So, I'll, I'll, do you have a view on Challenger Doc? Uh, no, no, no.
2: I don't. I, I, I know it's a good company. Actually, I had some view, but I, I, I think you know it, it's it's a slow and steady company.
1: All right, so Challenger Financial does something that most companies don't do, at least at scale in Australia, which is selling a product called an annuity. An annuity basically lets retirees normally, in particular, or people who are just looking to make income from their portfolios, exchange their cash for a regular flow of income. If that sounds like dividends to you, it's kind of that, except you actually don't own the underlying cash anymore. You'd hand it over in most cases. Some of the policies are a little bit different depending on the policy. Generally speaking, you say, look, I'm going to give you all my money, and in return, the company says, I will give you a guaranteed amount They calculate it as a percentage, but they pay it as a dollar amount. So let's say, let's just make it up, mate. Let's say you give them a million bucks. They promise to give you 40 grand a year in return. That's a 4% return. It won't fluctuate with the market. You won't have to worry about the capital value moving around. The dividends can't go up and down. You don't have to worry about the. Alan Kohler on the 7 News talking about the movements and share prices. You can just say, I don't care what happens there. I'm getting my money every day, all day. It's got to come in every month, reliably, regularly. That's good enough for me. Now, I happen to think that's a suboptimal investment strategy, by the way, but for some people, that's what they want. That's what makes them feel good. That's what helps them sleep at night. And frankly, if you've worked for 45 years, you deserve to sleep at night. So if that's the thing you need to do as an investor, then great. That's what challenge is there for. The pool of annuities is growing dramatically and will continue to in Australia because there's more money going into super, more money going to come out of super over the next 20 or 30 years. And I think the investment opportunity for Challenger relies basically on that. I think it's the leader by a long, long, long way in annuity sales um, and I think that will continue to happen. It's an investment, it's a life insurance policy for what it's worth. That's one of the technicalities, not a, not a financial product, it's not a fund or, a, or investment as such. It's a financial product in the sense it's a life insurance policy, of course, um, but they will pay you out for the rest of your life at an agreed amount. And as long as they don't go broke, which is a risk, uh, but a very, very small one, then you will receive your annuity from now until effectively the last breath you take. Now, that's a really good policy. I like the company a lot for that reason. I think there's going to be a growing amount of annuities being sold. The company clips the ticket. They effectively make a margin on the difference. They ensure the volatility, if you like, in the in the financial parlance. So if the market returns an average of 7% and they pay you 4 they get to take the three. So that's why they do it. That's what's in it for them. What's in it for the customers is that lack of volatility. Some days the market's down 3%, by the way. They still get paid out their 4%. So they make a loss in that year on that annuity. Um, and that's exactly why the company exists, to smooth out that volatility for people. And it takes its premium on the way through. So I expect the pool of annuities to continue growing pretty meaningfully. Australia already has the, l- the fourth largest pensions market in the world. And annuities haven't traditionally been very tax advantaged. That's going to change probably from next year under the current legislation, which I don't think either party is going to change. So in any case, I think that's a really good long-term trend for challenger. This is a 10-year-plus investment uh, strategy or investment thesis for me. I still like it. Yes, the price has fallen. It's fallen because it had a reasonably ordinary year last year. Because frankly, it didn't get the investment profit it had the year before. So profits fell. The market was pretty unimpressed. The shares fell. That's going to happen. Uh, but I think overall, that's still a very, very good and solid investment idea. It's one of my recommendations, a buy recommendation at ShareAdvisor. It's a company I'd be more than happy to hold for the next decade or more.
0: Get more Motley Full money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: I'm going to ask you a question. Ask me. You've seen the next question on our list, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I'm going, to take, I'm going to take a guess that you're going to be better able to pronounce that name than I am. And again, <laughs> I mean, no disrespect to the, to the correspondent. I just have, <laughs> I'm going to horribly hash it. I would, I would absolutely have a go and, and have an authentic, um, genuine go at it if I was mm. here by myself, but I'm not, and you are. Uh, and being at least uh, Indian by birth and, and by family background, I reckon you've probably got a better chance of producing, producing, pronouncing, if I can say pronouncing properly, pronouncing this than I have. What do you reckon?
2: I think so. So it's a good day, pruna- uh, Priyanshu. There you go. Priyanshu. Pranchu, Pranchu, Pardwaj. Pardwaj. How'd oh, I go? Pretty good, Scott. Pranchu, Pardwaj. Yeah, you can actually travel to India and, you know, actually speak <laughs> to people. <laughs> well, uh, if, if
1: I'm at Priyanshu, I can. If I'm at anybody <laughs> else, I'm stopped. <laughs> You're stopped. Again, I, I do apologize. I mean, absolutely no disrespect. Uh, lovely work on the podcast has been such a massive learning. Could you please tell me about the sources where we can apply for IPOs that are going to get listed in the US from Australia? So if you're in Australia, you invest in a US IPO, and Priyanshu gives the examples of Zoom, Uber, and Pinterest, and others. Thanks. Now, mate, I do a little bit of investing in the US, but I'm relatively hands-off there. My largest holding is Berkshire Hathaway, as I've said many times, but I don't do a lot of back and forth, and I certainly don't invest in IPOs. You're kind of closer to the IPO end of the market. You, you like growth companies, and you're more likely to invest in some of those. So you know more than I do on this one. Mm. How can an Australian investor get their hands on an IPO?
2: Okay. So if the question is, can do you if you want to invest... Before the company goes IPO, well, or, you, or at the IPO yeah, pricing. If you, if you
1: want shares, if you want shares in the IPO itself, if you want to buy yeah. shares that, that you, you buy before the company goes live. Mm. How do you do that?
2: I guess the only way to do that might be that you are with an investment bank that is actually going to deliver those IPO shares, and therefore you can right. apply for some, which uh, is
1: relatively unlikely.
2: <laughs> it's relatively <laughs> unlikely. Or it's, or, 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 well, I, you know, I don't want to make any guesses about you know uh, maybe Priyanchu mm. has got accounts with Morgan Stanley, yeah, uh, and therefore can. Okay, but even and, then,
1: you've uh, got to kind of be your preferred client, right? So if you're if you prefer
2: if you're a preferred client of Morgan Stanley maybe you can get shares at IPO um, otherwise you can get shares only when the company trades that's number one the, the couple of things I'll add um, you can indirectly get exposure to some of these companies a priori to them IPOing through other public companies so for okay. example Tell me how. so uh, again and this is not you can't really size things here so for example if you look at the big Chinese company called Tencent mm-hmm, it's, large, it's, it's a large large uh, you know, conglomerate in some sense um, of China It's a large internet company of China, but they have a lot of investments in um, a pre-IPO companies. Mm-hmm. They, you know, so you could get an exposure by buying shares in those companies and eventually you know one would think that maybe tencent is going to sell their share in say airbnb um when airbnb floats or at some point right Mm -hmm. so there'll be an exit clause that says that they can exit at some point okay so that's one way to get
1: exposure so kind of indirect exposure
2: indirect exposure um the other you know if you're interested in Really pre-IPO companies that are now uh, previously you couldn't as individual investor invest in mm. uh, very risky private companies. Now the those rules have been lightened, and okay. there are places like what one is called Seed Invest, for example, where you can read prospectus of various companies mm-hmm. from. Um, uh, from you know uh, from in, like somebody's cool idea to something really significant to maybe burgers you know if somebody has a burger joint that's going national <laughs> ah, to uh, Doc's Burgers I like it uh, you know too, you know all these you know new things have come out about you know the meatless meat uh, uh-huh. stuff you can invest in those sort of ideas through um, Seed Invest uh, I would okay. say that I have an account with Seed Invest but I've never invested because okay. um, a, never, I never got around to actually reading the prospectus and B um, uh, the one instance where I read something, um, there were so many clauses (laughs) that I couldn't get, you know, it really required you to read many times. So, I mean, it's possible, but it's hard, very hard, because most of these companies are owned by VC firms, you know, VC firms and have large stakes in it. And it's essentially when they're coming public. At some point, the VC funds are going to exit.
1: And they're not not—they're not really in the business of giving us retail investors a even shake, are
2: they? No, no, no. <laughs> so the, v, the VC funds, and, and, and the general trend has been for VC funds to actually hone, own this. So VC and venture capitals have been owning and holding on to these companies for a long, long time before yep. they're actually bringing these companies into the public market. Uber is apparently going to come at a $100 billion plus valuation, right? Dear, so, dear. Um, yeah, Pocket change. A pocket change. Split it. You want to go so, halves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So Mate, yeah, okay. it's hard.
1: Great question. Look, I, I will say, Prounchier, I'll, I'll add a couple of thoughts. Just, just the first thing I guess I add is, is, to Doc's point, they've loosened the regulations. We're all for investor access at the Motley Fool. I have to say on a personal level, I kind of get nervous anytime that happens. The fact that there are regulations is designed to protect retail investors from, you know, the, the original idea they're called sophisticated investors, right? Well, those people who could do it without a prospectus, without a lot of detail, take some more risk. Now, we all kind of want to be risk you know, tolerant or, or even risk seeking potentially sometimes. Um, but at some level, the fact there is less, you know, less disclosure pre-IPO can be both a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. So just be a little bit careful there. Of course, we also know that like... Um, most VC firms will say they get about one in 20 right. So, unless you're going to buy a whole lot of them, looking at just one company hoping to make money in that pre IPO market can be a bit of a, you know, a bit of a crapshoot. You might get, you might do okay, you might do terribly. And frankly, if you had three or four of them, there's every chance you might lose in all of them. Even if one of the 20 still wins, the chance of you getting that one out of that 20 is pretty light. I will say, too, for what it's worth, it's always tempting to get in pre- IPO right, because we all hear that kind of the term stag profit the idea of the day one profit if I can mm. buy a hundred 100, 100 list 150 then I'm all of a sudden a squillionaire um, that's pretty enticing mm. I will say thought it's worth think about the likes of say a Facebook or a Google or a and Amazon or Doc, you might be throwing me a couple other ideas. Um, Twitter. That, Twitter. Companies mm-hmm. that, that listed and they've gone on to bigger and better things post-listing, right? So the, the money on a, on a really high-quality company that IPOs is very rarely all made on day one. So yes, you know, it'd be nice to make money before that. Frankly, though, if you buy a pre-IPO company and lose money, you're worse off than if you waited for a Google to go public just to pick an example and bought it on day one or day two or day seven or day 25 or day 400, you still made a heap of money, right, relative to- You'd be
2: just better off buying Apple, though.
1: Or Apple, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Apple's a long yeah but, yeah, yeah, but no, no,
2: no, 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 So the day Google came out, and you know, if you bought Apple shares that day, you'd still be <laughs> way ahead. It's just, just, just a small, small fact. I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, I'll, I'll, I think that's uh, just, okay. So I, uh, I had to throw you off your uh, thank you. uh, off your track. Here. But I think it, it is very. Sedu- I think the the it is seductive to think and uh, you know invest in. Actually, it's even risky to actually invest right after a company comes into the market, yeah, right? Because right. you know there's a lot of exuberance. The share prices either go up a lot or go down a lot yep. right i'll take Maya, right Maya list <laughs> and then we know nowhere but down after that yeah so so a lot of things happen but the other thing to th- remember is that you know if just think of the sx sx got like what 1700 companies right if you yes. if you go to the nasdaq and nyse you've got another like six thousand. if you think of the world's companies <laughs> you've got probably like fifteen thousand companies that you can invest in yeah um and people can make as you said you know you could invest in amazon and make you know in bucks in the public market. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe watching for the financials and seeing, you know, having good exposure to the financials, seeing what the company is doing is, uh, there, there are ways to make money and maybe more safer, better, yeah. and and less risky.
1: Well, I think that is the good point, right? I mean, I know you're you about Apple, but at some level, that's kind of the point. So, you know, investing in the Google IPO, if you were going to make more money out of Apple, now, you had to know that in advance and maybe you mm-hmm. didn't, and both have done very well, by the way, but to some degree, you know, desperately waiting for the IPO or trying to invest pre IPO Google or whatever. Yeah. There were actually much better opportunities on the market already anyway. Exactly. So don't just get fixated on the IPOs in themselves. They kind of feel like these lottery ticket ideas that you want to be part of yeah. they don't always necessarily give you the best possible
2: And market. there's a lot of buzz, right? The buzz is created by the newspapers, the Twitters and the you know, everything. People there's a lot of buzz and excitement. Exactly. FOMO. FOMO. FOMO, yeah. Fear so, of missing out.
1: Yeah. Mate, that almost wraps us up. Before we go, though, I am going to share our social contacts. If you want to get in touch with us, please email us at info at (laughs) fool.com.au. You can get us on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU or get us on Facebook, the Motley Fool Australia. We're all those platforms. Twitter's the most fun because we get to kind of chat back and forth. Not everyone's on Twitter, though. So if you're not on Twitter, feel free to email us or hit us up, as I said, on Facebook. We love hearing from you. Give us your comments, your suggestions, your questions. Most importantly, let us know what we're doing right and wrong and what you want to hear more or less of. As I say regularly, this is your podcast. We do it for the love of it, quite frankly. You're not paying anything for it. At least if you are, you're paying the wrong people. And if you want to send us cash, feel free. But other than that, we hope you're enjoying it. So please let us know what will make it better for you and doc as i always say you can subscribe to the triple m motley full money podcast through itunes or your favorite android podcast app and if you like what we're doing please give us a five-star rating give us a review as David Gardner would say, as I quoted a couple of times, throw us some stars. I'll steal his stuff because it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the more people know about the podcast, hopefully the more people, the more Australians are investing better and that's why we're here. And, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week after Easter with another dose of Foolish Insight. Happy Easter and full
0: on. full on.